Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Good to be back, Owen. We have two fantastic guests with us, experts. One is a veteran of the Australian Finance Podcast. The other is new to us. We have Amy Lenardi from amylenardi.com.au. You can find out more about Amy if you listen to our recent podcast. She's also got a podcast of her own. She's a buyer's advocate and she's helped us with our recent course. Amy, welcome back to the show. Oh, so good to be back. I've missed you guys. It's, it's <laughs> like been, it's been that forever. <laughs> We've got a lot to catch up on and, and maybe we can do that in a future episode, but I'll welcome our other guest who is uh, Chris Bates. Chris comes from Wealthful in Sydney. He's a mortgage broker. Chris, welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. Thank you so much, Owen and Kate. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Chris, if I'm not mistaken, we're recording this early 2021, your firm... Wealthful just won an award or was voted in you know, the very high ranks of the Australian mortgage broking industry. Is that right? Yep. We um, we had a pretty big 2020 year in growth and 2021 similar. And yeah, every year the mortgage brokers sort of apply for this top 100 award and we came ninth in the country, which, you know, it's based on basically how much loans you write as a volume. It doesn't mean technically the best broker, but it's just if you, that one metric, it mainly sort of ranks you. So yeah, we're very happy as a team how how many people we helped ultimately because that's, you know, by doing a lot of loans, it means there's a lot of customers and clients that have gone through a journey with us and and a lot of them have purchased their first home or upgraded or done renovations. So that for us is a, a huge, you know, great great to receive because it just shows the impact we're making. Yeah, totally. And you, Sarah and I, my wife and I, we can um, be counted as one of your or two of your customers in 2020 and we're thrilled with that. So thanks to you and Ben and the team for helping us out there. So today... For those who don't know, Kate and I have been working with Chris and Amy, and Chris and Amy have done the, the grunt work here. They've helped us put together a Property 101 course on RASC Education. Totally free course, now available, takes you through pretty much everything you want to know or the essentials for buying your first home. Um, so it's fantastic. I learned so much just going over the material and we've been doing this for probably six to 12 months um, in terms of organizing it shooting it, getting it all edited and up on the site. And then it's a free course and it gives you insights into how Chris and Amy think about property and in particular how how it works for people that are new to the property market and what you really need to understand. If you ask me, this is the type of course that if you don't make money from it, so if you don't take away actionable ideas, at least you'll probably save tens of thousands of dollars just from the advice you're going to get from the course. So things like when you're doing your inspection, what are you looking for? Or if you're searching for a home, what are you looking for? If you're trying to get finance, what's the best way to do that? What should should you be paying attention to? So we're thrilled to be able to work with these two guys. And what we're going to do today, to give you an introduction to Chris and Amy, Kate and I are going to ask them for their top five tips or suggestions or ideas for first-home buyers in 2021. Kate, maybe we'll go 
um, I go, you go in terms of questions, and and we'll go down the list of the five things that Chris and Amy have got for us. So why don't we go with you, Kate? Is there anything that you want to add before we uh, maybe before we get to those those points? Yeah, I just want to say it's really exciting to have this course available now because I know a lot of people in our community are really interested in buying their first home, especially after the events of the last year, maybe thinking about going more uh, regionally in Australia. So it's as Owen and I are both sort of in the investing in shares and ETFs frame of mind, it's really cool to get some experts in to talk about properties. So uh, I'm really excited that this course is now available. And uh, I guess I'll kick it off with Amy for her first tip for first home buyers in 2021. So my first tip, and this is something that I always put a lot of effort into when I'm starting to work with clients, is putting a brief together. So when you're a first home buyer, when you're buying any property, your brief consists of three things. The first thing is your budget, and that's generally fixed. It'd be great to have more money if you could, but you've generally got a limit with your borrowing capacity. And then you've got your upper limit, which you'd spend on the perfect property and your goal limit. The next part of your brief is your location. So what are your dream suburbs and what are your maybe suburbs? And then the third part is the property characteristics. So what does that property look like? Is it three bedrooms? Is it a house or a townhouse? How far away from the train station is it? And that's all well and good for you to put your wish list together. But the most important thing to do here is to make sure that you could actually achieve that brief for your budget at that point in time. And this is a step that I see home buyers kind of not do. And that's because they don't realize it's actually fairly easy to do by just jumping in the sold section. So you jump on realestate.com.au or domain, you go in the sold section and you have a look at what's been selling. So you have to go through maybe I'd say around six to 12 months of sales and say, all right, well, how often does a property sell, which ticks all of my non-negotiables boxes and sells for within my budget? If you can't find many, it's because it probably doesn't exist and your brief is unachievable. So you might then have a play around with changing maybe some of your location metrics or your property characteristics until you say, all right, what I want does exist. It's selling for within my budget. And I think that I can achieve this. And just bear in mind, if you're in a rising market, the further back in time you go, sometimes the more you need to reduce that price filter. So just spend a lot of time doing this. Don't get out there at the start and then feel disheartened because what you want, you know, you can't find or if it's constantly selling over your budget, the more effort you put into doing this homework at the beginning, the more realistic you'll be and then you can hit the ground running at the start. I think that's a great one because you really need to make sure your expectations and reality are aligning because otherwise it could be a pretty fruitless search and you could end up just being really unhappy and not actually finding what you want. So I think that's a that's a really good tip to start with. Yeah, Amy, I, I really like that. And when we looked at the video um, that you put together and the instructions that you put together for the course, um, I was like, I was thinking back to how I did it. And <laughs> Sarah and I sat down and we literally on a piece of paper, drew ourselves in the middle, like little stick figures. And then around the outside did the five things that are important to us. Like I love that. We try, I tried to draw a train. I tried to draw <laughs> like all these little things that were really important and there was no structure to it. So putting together um, a brief sounds like just a great way to do things. Chris, what's your first tip for listeners, mate? I, I absolutely love that, Amy. I think the we definitely see that with clients that don't do that, um, get out in the market and looking for a needle in the haystack and months can go by and times can be quite costly. 
you know, just chasing the market and swapping suburbs, et cetera. So you definitely need that real strong brief and, you know, before you even go out and buy, you know what's achievable. In the same breath, my first tip is is quite similar. Um, you know, a lot of you go to mortgage brokers or you speak to family and it's all about just getting on the ladder and just getting a property. But I kind of feel the complete opposite. You know, the first one is actually the most important property decision. You know, if you get into the retiree stage and you buy a poor property, well, you've probably got lots of other assets and it's not going to make a huge dent in your your longer-term future. But for your first property, you're putting every single dollar in, um, you're borrowing a lot of money. And how that property performs over that first five years or it'll give you options down the line. And if so if you don't buy a great asset as your first property, it has this sort of knock-on effect and compounding effect. It takes you on this different train for the rest of your life and that's not being probably too harsh. So I think with the first property, you've really got to focus on the investment quality of what you're buying and you have to sort of take it on the chin and say, look, maybe it's not ultimately what's going to be the best lifestyle benefit for me. You know, yes, it's still good. You want to be able to live there and things like that, but you have to focus on the investment quality and you have to educate yourself on what that is. So yeah, just for your first one and ideally, you know, through the rest of your life, but really figure focus on the investment quality because then you get more options in the future. And then ultimately you'll get the properties that you get all your lifestyle benefits down the line. Mm. I hear that, Chris. And the podcast that that you co-host, The Elephant in the Room, deals with this at great length. So if you don't know what Chris or Amy mean by investment grade or investment quality, high quality, et cetera, you can go and listen to the the Elephant in the Room podcast. Wonderful advice, Chris. Kate, over to you. Yeah. So I guess just one more question for you, Chris. I think a lot of young people think first home, they just want to get in as quickly as possible. They'll get a tiny one-bedroom apartment, one bath, maybe a car space in a massive apartment building. What is your thoughts when someone comes to you with that in mind? So we're not a fan of, you know, those uh, things that aren't scarce, basically. You know, you know, apartments generally, um, that they can build lots of them in spaces where they're building lots of them aren't scarce. And, you know, especially when they've got compromise, like you said there about parking or it's a studio or it's a one bed or it's dark, you know, and a lot of people are looking for that bargain. I just want to tick this off my sort of, you know, list here. I'll, you know, my goals of 2021 is to buy a property and it's just about buying a property, not a quality property. So a lot of the time it's about reframing what are they trying to achieve ultimately longer term and then educating on what, you know, what's going to happen when they buy that property in terms of growth and then what's going, what's going to be the challenge when they try to sell that property in the future and how that's potentially going to perform based on what's happened to similar properties longer term. So, you know, I guess my second tip is probably in that same vein, sorry to, to switch <laughs> back to me, Amy, but is to don't fall for sort of that FOMO that's in the market that society perpetuates. The media is, you know, early 2021 now, but they're really sort of ramping that up at the moment. and. For a lot of clients, I say, look, let's get some clarity on where you're going to go with work or family, or maybe you've just started dating someone. What's going to happen there? You know, is there a pay rise or can you save more? I'd much rather them, you know, wait and get a quality asset than just getting into the market so they can say they've got an investment property or get their family off the back mm-hmm. because ultimately then they'll get the rewards of what they're trying to achieve. And for such an important asset, right? It's not just, you know, when we talk about shares, Kate and I are on the show saying, you know, you can put $2,000 in this if you're not completely convinced. But when this thing might be half a million dollars, a million dollars, whatever it might be, avoiding FOMO is probably paramount. So um, that's a fantastic tip there. How about you, Amy? What would be your number two? 
My number two is around off-market and pre-market sales. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, an off-market or pre-market is a property that's not on the internet. Off-market is something that's never going to go on the internet, whilst pre-market is something which is going to go online at some point in time, maybe in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And unless you're getting access to these types of properties, it's like going into the supermarket and only being allowed in half of the shop. You don't know what else is out there. And the only way to get access to these types of properties is through the local real estate agents. But you have to actually be really proactive about this. You can't just have a chat to them, you know, at one point in time and then a month later expect them to remember you. You need to be constantly and consistently speaking to them to get access to these properties. But also, if you've done that property brief, like we talked about just before, you can be really clear with them about what you want. And they also know that you're being realistic because you've done that reality check. And just to give context, last year I bought 60% plus of my clients' properties off market. Now that is way more than normal. And that was because of COVID. And there was a lot of nervous vendors who didn't want to commit to marketing and going online. But my long-term average is about one in three. That that's a that's a very, very high proportion of properties that you could be missing out on if you're not actually getting access to them. And they can be fickle. They can they can be vendors that are really unmotivated with off markets, or maybe they want way too much money. So take it with a grain of salt, but just understand that there are thousands out there at any point in time. Yeah, I've got to say that's really caught me off guard. Sixty percent um, last year in twenty twenty. That's a huge number. And I feel like one of the things for me as an investor in shares is I look for opportunities um, in places that other people can't see, or at least the majority of people can't see. And that because I I believe that information asymmetry gives you an advantage over other people and other investors, or in this case, uh, home buyers. So I think that's a fantastic tip there, Amy. So um, it's kind of like I, I like to compare it to the dark internet, the dark web, in that you don't <laughs> you don't know what's in there. You don't know what's accessible unless you actually get given an address. And even if you ultimately end up buying a property that's on the internet, at least you know that you've canvassed all of those other ones. You've got context and you know that you're making the right decision because you know what else is out there. So it just gives you that little bit more confidence in your decision-making when the time comes. Kate, over to you. Oh, well, are we back to Amy's third one? I think we skipped a bit. So, <laughs> I'd love to just throw one point in there as well with Amy there. I mean, something has got off-market, which is generally the it's not going to go onto domain or real estate, but you have got the pre-market with the agents going to list it in a couple of weeks. But, you know, to get market feedback and potentially get a quick sale, they may list it pre-market and get some buyers through and, that's a really key advantage if you're getting access to the property before the rest of the market sees it because you've got a relationship with an agent. Um, because if that is the right property for you, you may be the only buyer on it that's ready to go and uh, lots of clients have bought in that pre-market phase where it just it was going to go to market but they got a great offer uh, and there was no need to list it because they, the vendor got what they wanted. So um, you definitely need to be open to this. One thing I do like to do in Sydney, in New South Wales, to look at things that are selling off market is the value of general releases all the sales in a suburb. And you can go through lists in suburb and go, well, that was never on domain. That was never on real estate. And so you can actually see that properties are selling without no one knowing about it um, because all the sales are on there. Hmm. Chris, why don't we jump to your number three then? Um, 
this is an interesting one and one that I've changed my opinion on over the years. Is this the uh, LMAO is your friend or? That, that's the one, mate. Yeah. It's all right. I wasn't sure if you're going the other one. So um, it is something, it's LMI, it's often, it's like a bit of a myth and it's often confused. There's lots of articles on the internet. You must have a 20% deposit. You don't want to pay lenders mortgage insurance. It's really expensive, um, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of people don't really understand how it works and, you know, how how much is it compared to their situation and what they're going to purchase at. Um, the other thing is that LMI gets gradually more expensive. It's like an exponential curve. And at 88%, so a 12% deposit, it's not too bad ultimately if it saves you having to save another 8% deposit, which could be another 40 grand on $500,000 purchase or something, right? Which could take you another one or two years to save that money. So, you know, if you have to pay an LMI that isn't that expensive at 88% to save you waiting one or two years to enter the market, I actually think that's a pretty good bet. You know, LMI's still quite affordable at 90%, but We've, I can't even remember the last time we did a loan over 90%. So, um, yeah, we always aim to get at least a 10% deposit plus 5% for stamp duty. So that's around 15%. But if you can get to that sort of 12% deposit to so 70%, you don't need to save to a 20% deposit. A good thing to remember as well, LMI is actually tax deductible over five years if you buy an investment property as well. So if your first property is an investment property, it's even potentially more reason um, not to kind of save to that 20% deposit um, on top of potential higher tax, you know, loans as well, um, deductible limits. So, yeah, don't be afraid of LMI. Um, try not to pay more than 90% loans. Like we just don't like them. We just think the LMI is too expensive. But once you get to that 10, 15, 10, 15 to 17% deposit, really question whether you should just pay LMI um, rather than trying to save more money. I remember at the very start of 2019 when we launched the podcast, Owen was vehemently against paying LMI. Um, I, I think he changed his position a little bit last year. I'm not sure. Yeah, I did. I did because I always thought that it was the most expensive thing you don't have to pay. And then I was like, well, actually, should what we're telling people, should, should we be telling them to, to buy assets and to buy you know things that actually go up in price? And I'm not saying like, that's very simplistic, but you know the messaging there was kind of like if you can avoid it, avoid it. But at the same time, to Chris's point, and I've been speaking with a lot of property investors over the last few years who really t- disagree with my stance or did, um, have said, you know, actually it's not the worst thing in the world. You shouldn't make it out to be the worst thing in the world. And yeah, I think I ha- my stance on it's definitely softened. And I didn't know that, Chris, that it was tax deductible. So there's something that's um, because I don't have an investment property. That's um, that's a really interesting thing. So um, you would did you say that that would come like so you would be able to deduct that over time? So you know, yeah, five a, years or something like that. Yeah, it's a borrowing cost, so you have to deduct it over five years. So let's say it was ten grand over five years, it's two grand a year. So you know, your net cost on that's probably like six grand rather than ten grand. So the other thing where we we sometimes recommend it, even if clients have got the twenty percent deposit, is if they're thinking about doing a renovation on the property because. You know, they, they might keep 8% back, um, which is enough to keep them buffers. And that's the other reason why you might want to do it. Like, do you really want to purchase your first home and have nothing left in the bank and be stressed in case, you know, things change? With A lot of first-time buyers are getting to that family formation phase as well and incomes are going to change. And so, you know, just paying this lender's mortgage insurance that gets added on top of your loan, you haven't got to find that money, is sometimes a really good thing just to protect you. Ultimately, you want to get through that danger zone um, where income and you haven't got much savings. So 
don't be apprehensive of paying LMI, especially if you're getting a good asset and you're getting into the market earlier than if you had to wait, you know, one or two years down the line, for example. Yeah, if you're in a flat or if you're in a decreasing market, your opportunity cost is less than if you're in a rising market because your cost of catching up with that market is likely going to be higher than that LMI. And a lot of people don't realize that LMI can often be added onto the loan. So it's not a big bulk upfront cost. So it will cost you more in interest over time. It'll cost you a little bit more in repayments. But look, I got, I got a, Chris, you'll hate this. I got a 97% loan <laughs> for my second property. <laughs> yeah. But that was because it fit in line with my strategy and I was on quite an aggressive portfolio building journey at the time. So I actually very much support LMI, perhaps not that high, but it allowed me to get into the market at the right time. Mm. I, yeah, when I was talking, we, Kate, uh, Amy and I had a conversation, listeners may remember, um, when I first when we first bought our house and Chris helped us with that, the, the, the feedback that I got at the time, and this is from Chris and his team was, you know, you can just get an offset account that attaches to your loan. So you can either choose to take a higher loan and keep that money in the bank. And I'm glad we did Chris, because, you know, we use that money to improve the value of the house. And yep. to be honest, it, it is, you know, a shack in the hills. So <laughs> uh, it did need a bit of TLC. So I'm so grateful for that advice. Um, and I think, you know, that's probably, again, you know, part of me just coming to the realisation that things like LMI can help. Yeah, and just a final thing there is that you can potentially reuse LMI, which is another thing that people don't know. So, you know, Owen, in that, for example, you could potentially, after you've added value, then go back and redraw and actually reuse that LMI and borrow more than 80%, which a lot of people mm. don't know. So LMI has got a really bad rap, but once you understand how the mechanics of it work, and it does co- cost different amounts at different banks. And so when you are paying LMI, when you're looking at the cost of your loan, you need to sort of compare that not with your interest rate. So my interest rate's X, but it might be a higher rate, but my LMI is cheaper. So let's go with them, even though it's a higher rate. So that's just another thing people can get caught out on. Awesome. I think we should probably jump to Amy's third tip now. (laughs) Good one. So my next tip, this this is more of a practical tip. So if you're already in the market and you're going to properties and you're putting offers in, sometimes you might find yourself in an offer situation, which is called a like a closed envelope or a best and higher situation. And this can happen with private sales and off markets, but it can sometimes happen when someone triggers an offer prior to auction and the agent would rather do a best and highest than do more of a transparent method. So what this means is that each buyer gets to put in one offer Sometimes they'll have a second chance, sometimes they won't, but the offers aren't disclosed to anyone else. So you don't know if you've put in $1,000 more than someone else or $100,000 more. And it can be a really, really, really stressful situation because it's just not transparent. So buyers feel really uncomfortable. And what I often see in these situations is they really doubt, start to doubt themselves because they don't know where the other buyers are at. So in these situations, my best advice here is to come back to your own numbers. So when I'm helping clients formulate um, an offer, I help them figure out how much that property is worth based on historical sales, how much it's probably going to get to based on the current market. So that is what the demand is like, the other properties that are competing against it, but then also what it's worth to that client. 
And that could be higher or lower than the market value, depending on how many boxes it ticks, to how long they've been looking and so forth. And then we figure out what our personal value number is. And that's what we stick to. So regardless of what the other buyers do, that's out of our control. Whether we pay 10 grand more or $500 more than someone else becomes irrelevant because it's what we value that property at. Now, the second part of this tip is also understanding how to frame your offer in the best way possible. And that is having as minimal conditions as you can, because if there's other offers that are unconditional, then you want to be competing against them. So you might choose to do your building inspection up front, for example, then be subject to a building inspection and also speak to your bank or broker about whether you can be unconditional with finance or not. If you've got a fully assessed pre-approval and a healthy LVR, then sometimes you might be able to be unconditional and that will put your offer in the it'll frame your offer as much more competitive. Mm. I often come across these, Amy, and I think to myself, that is pretty scary for the buyer because that is firmly in the um, the agent and vendor's hands, right? Like you literally, you can only, if you don't know how to value a house, you're kind of just taking a stab in the dark and you're hoping that maybe they accept it, maybe they give you a second chance. Um, is it enough? Is it too high? It's very hard to know unless you actually do the, the valuation, right? It's so hard. It's really hard. And also what I find is that people don't ask the agents the right questions. So you really have to ask things like, what's the timing going to be? If you get an acceptable offer, how long am I going to have? Is it going to be 24 hours, a couple of days? They might sometimes say, well, if we get an acceptable offer, we're not calling anyone else back. That's horrifying. So you need to ask them what the timing is. And then you need to say to them, all right, is everyone just getting one shot? Is the first person getting the last shot? That sometimes happens. Or if you have a couple of offers and they're all really similar, how are you going to deal with that? Unless you ask those questions at the start, you're not going to know how to frame your offer and how quick you need to move. Yeah, so it's really about asking the agent all those questions so you can put in the best offer possible for that situation. 100%. Absolutely. So, Chris, I think we're at your number four here, mate. What's... What what is your fourth tip for listeners? I think the I was going to say a few different. I got a few so many different tips, but I I thought about this one this morning. I think the biggest mistake I see first home buyers make, which is ideally a tip in the opposite way, um, is to really don't fall for the government incentives. You know that <laughs> the, once you understand the, how the property market works, it's really a construction industry that builds all the new stuff, and then you've got an established property market and. This the construction industry is supported by, you know, a lot of government incentives. You know, first home buyer grants. You know, stamp duty savings. You know, etc. Home builder. Ultimately, those properties, the vast, vast majority of them in areas where there's high supply and continued supply hitting the market, and uh, they're hitting the affordability market. And so, a lot of first home buyers fall for those incentives because they're very much targeted at first home buyers, and then there's a huge opportunity cost down the line for them where they go, oh. If I didn't buy that and I maybe saved a little bit more and I bought a better asset, this is where I would be in five years' time rather than where I am today. And I think a lot of first-time buyers just don't know that. They think that new is better than old. And so once you understand property, you understand that the land's what goes up in value, not the building in most cases. And a lot of the new house and land packages, most of your money is going into a new building and land that's just not that valuable because it's just not that scarce. So, yeah, be very careful with um, the first home 
sort of government incentives. There is a really good one, for example, in New South Wales at the moment. So if you buy an established property, you know, under 650, there's no stamp duty. So that's a great one to take advantage of. But all the ones that are encouraging you to buy new property, you know, try to avoid those because they are a huge opportunity cost down the line. I think, Chris, I was speaking to your um, podcast co-host Veronica last year and she was saying that so many of those incentives are not actually for first home buyers. They're, at the end of the day, they're for the economy and the building industry. So don't think they're like a gift for you. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. It's all just one big Ponzi scheme, if you ask me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's, it's, it's wise advice. I mean, if you're not going to do something any in any case, just be mindful of why you're making that decision in the first place. And, you know, maybe basic first principles here, like why are we buying the house? Are we feeling, you know, that we're missing out or something like that? Amy, are we up to your number four or number five? We're up to number four. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this, is another pra- this is another practical tip that I've got for buyers who are out there and they're in the market and they're starting to do their due diligence. So that is researching the property and area to make sure it's suitable and there's no issues with it. And my recommendation here is there's free and really easy stuff that you can do before you even get your contract reviewed and your building inspection, because those things can cost you money. And what I'm referring to here is looking into the local council and what's happening in the vicinity. What are the zoning and overlays on my property? Because perhaps there could be a deal breaker there that you're not sure about. Now, there's some tools on the internet. You can go to the local council planning scheme if you can figure out how to do that. Otherwise, you can call your local council and you can ask what the zoning and overlay are on that property. Now, some examples of deal breaker overlays could be something like a flooding overlay, or you might be in a high bushfire prone area, or maybe it's a vegetation overlay and it means you can't remove those big gum trees in the back. So you can't do the extension that you want to do. So better to find that out at the start rather than later on. You can also speak to the council about any local developments that are happening in the vicinity of your property. So what I'm referring to here is mainly the properties that are directly either side of you, over the road and behind you, because if there's a big apartment complex going up or even some townhouses, you want to know about that, or potentially a big apartment block at the end of the street. And you know if that's going to impact your amenity or if you just don't want to be near a construction site, you can factor that in. And then another free and easy thing for you to do from the couch <laughs> or sitting at home is if you're buying within an, a strata block or a body corporate, you can get a copy of the minutes, get a copy of the body corporate certificate, read through it all, and then call the body corporate and have a chat to them. Clarify any questions you've got from the minutes. If they've mentioned they're getting quotes to do some roof repairs, but there's no mention of the quotes in there call them and say, well, have you got these yet? How much are they? When are you planning on doing this? They're not always going to speak to you. I find some body corporate managers are a little bit more challenging and they'll say, no, we can't speak to you because of privacy. In which case, email your questions to the agent and get the agent to get the answers on your behalf. Don't just say this is too hard or don't do this extra bit of research. I have uncovered so much information from these phone calls in the past with body corporates. Sometimes they've been really positive outcomes and sometimes they've uncovered deal breakers for my clients. So this is free, easy stuff for you to do. You can do it within an hour and you can do it sitting on the couch. 
Mm. And until you told me those things last year, I wouldn't have even thought about doing that on my property buying journey. Um, so there you I go. Think it's really, yeah, these these things that not necessarily going to cost you a fortune to do, but really could save you a fortune if you um, buy the wrong place or something with a really difficult body corporate. Absolutely. And until you start looking into the minutes and thinking about the types of questions to ask, you won't really know. Or you might feel kind of nervous the first time you call the council. I've had someone say, <laughs> do I have to book an appointment in? I'm like, nope. <laughs> Just call them. You ask to speak to the planning department. They are really helpful. I've never had an issue with council. They're there to help you. I guess that's what the council, your council rates are going to pay for. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Okay, I think we're up to lucky number five from Chris. Did you save the best for last, mate? I did. I think this is one of the strategies that I always try to encourage with clients. Um, we get a lot of um, young couples and, you know, maybe they're even quite new relationships and, you know, I'm always sort of asking them big questions like, you know, kids on the way, you're thinking about kids like everyone else is in their lives. But, um, you know, a lot of couples and people don't really, they say, well, it's, it's in three or four years' time. But three or four years happens really fast, right? And, you know, a lot of people want to buy what their needs are today and for their lifestyle today, but not how their life's going to change in the future. And so we always try to, you know, get the clients thinking, well, you know, what could we, could we buy something today that we could grow into an asset? So whether it's through a renovation, so let's buy a two-bed house in a great suburb that we really want to live long-term. Um, maybe it's a bit run down, but we're happy to live in that. And then we'll renovate it to a three-bed, two-bath in the future. Or, you know, maybe we'll buy a home, even though we in an area that we want to live. Um, we'll live in it for a bit, get it growing tax-free, so use something called the six-year rule. And then we'll move back to the inner ring and be around our friends for a few more years till we're at that level. So we just see it's very common that people will buy, let's say, a two-bed apartment and, you know, and that's great for them right now. But kid comes along and then all of a sudden they go, look, we're running out of space and the challenge we find here is that, you know, they wouldn't want to sell that asset to buy another asset and it's likely that the asset they want to buy has outperformed the asset that they bought because mainly it hits the demographic, which is the family market, which is a stronger market than the two-bed and, say, the one-bed market, which is usually investors and couples. So, yeah, I guess that you have to be a little bit careful if, you're, if the asset, the future home that you want isn't a great investment and it's in a location that isn't as good as what you could buy today, then yeah, you wouldn't do it. But a lot of the time we find that you're better off to buy that future home or something you can grow into and renovate than, for example, buying for your needs today. I like that. I like that. I know you've got plenty more, Chris. So you've got many more tips than just these five. So we'll have to have you back on the show to share more of them in time. But before we do that, Amy, we've got your number five, which I'm dying to hear. Mm, so my last tip is to do with quote ranges. And I often hear people say things like, oh, if the if it were in a hot market and the property is quoted eight to eight fifty, that means it's gonna go for nine hundred plus. That's not the case. You can't actually apply any type of like rule or trend around quote ranges. So when we're talking about a private sale, there's either going to be a fixed price or there's going to be a range. Now what that says is that the vendor will accept that price or whenever it's a range, it's generally the top of the range in the absence of competition. But competition might still take that above or you might get that for less, especially if your terms are good. But if we're talking about auctions, the quote range is supposed to reflect two things, one of which is comparable sales and what that market, that property is worth. And secondly, the vendor's expectations. Now, 
the issue here is that sometimes agents can be a little bit cheeky with comparable sales and say things are comparable when they're not, or sometimes there can just be no really good comparable sales. So that quote range can sometimes not reflect what the property is worth. But secondly, a vendor's reserve or a vendor's expectations, the vendor doesn't necessarily want what the property is worth. Sometimes they want way more. Sometimes they want way less because they've motivated and perhaps they've bought another property and they just need to sell that. So there's no hard and fast rule here. And just as a practical example, in December late last year, I bid on a property. It was quoted 1211 and I bought that property for a million and 45 at auction because I did my comparable sales. I said to the client, I think this is going to pass in. It's not worth one one. It's not worth in excess of that. And that's what happened. So if you were a buyer and you were just saying, oh, it's quoted one to one one, it's going to go over that, you would have not gone. You might have not looked at that property and you would have missed out. So just don't apply any rules. Make sure you do your own research. Do your comparable sales analysis. The more you're in that market and seeing what things are sell for and going through properties and tracking sale results, the better idea you'll have around price. Don't just rely on the quote range. And I think the quote range is a lot tighter in in the city where you might have an apartment block where there's like five that have sold in the last year and it's quite comparable. But then when you work, move a bit further out, like in Owen's direction, there's less less around to compare to. Do you have any tips for maybe a first home buyer who's thinking about moving a little bit more regionally and there's less comparable sales available? It's really hard when there's less comparable sales. Sometimes you have to go a little bit further back in time to get good sales. I'd sometimes rather go back further in time than go like, you know, three or four suburbs out where the demographics and the values are totally different. If you can't go back further in time, sometimes you do have to go a bit further out or you do have to look at something with one less or one extra bedroom. It can be incredibly challenging there. And I've done literally thousands of comparable sales and sometimes I'll still come across tricky ones where I'll still arrive at a figure or a range, but I've got a low confidence rating. And that's normal because we can't make comparable sales just appear. We're working with the information that we that we have. Yeah. You see, Amy and Chris, Kate wants to buy a forest and <laughs> trying to find comparable sales on a forest is actually quite difficult to do. So she was just trying to get the inside word there. Chris I'll, Bates from- I'll just finish off there by saying if you're not certain around the value and especially if you've got a high LVR, then that's that means that you should probably consider being subject to finance or subject to a bank fail mm. just because you wouldn't you'd have a higher chance of potentially that bank fail coming in less if there's no good comps. Yeah. Well, that's 10 tips from our experts, Amy Lenardi from amylenardi.com.au, a buyer's advocate. Um, You can find out all about her services on the website or you can find her on Instagram. Uh, She's got her own podcast. And Chris Bates from Wealthful, wealthful wealthful.com.au. You can find out all about Chris's uh, mortgage broking and just his general um, like money management advice. If you follow him on LinkedIn, he's got the Elephant in the Room podcast. Before we let listeners go and before we let uh, you two lovely guests go, we have a free course that's curated by Amy and Chris uh, with our support and it's on RASC Education. It is totally free. You get to learn a little bit about some of the, you know, the things you need to consider before buying, during the buying process and after buying a house. This is so important for your first home listeners. Um, I mean, you know, we, we joke with 
you know, the guys here and keep it lighthearted, but it is a really serious and important time in your financial life. Um, you know, a lot of people say to us, we need to cover more property. We need, there needs to be better resources available. Well, these two experts have helped us out. Please go ahead, take the course, review it, and get in touch with Chris and Amy if you need their expertise. So Chris from Mortgage Broking, uh, Amy for Buyers Advocacy. Uh, really, really impressive people. So thrilled to have you on the podcast today and thrilled to be working with you for the course. So Chris, Amy, thanks for joining Kate and I. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at risk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.